BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Obscurities. I'm your host, Debbie Rashawn. When Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 disappeared from radar screens on March 8, 2014, the world was captivated. As details emerged, the story became more strange as the hours and days went by. An erratic flight path deviation from the flight plan, loss of traditional tracking particulars, continued military and satellite tracking data, and the complete disappearance of the plane, crew, and passengers fused together to form the most extensive mystery of the 21st century. A comprehensive three-year search by Joint Agency Coordination Center and with the help from many countries failed to locate the crash site. A later search by a private contractor also turned up no results after six months. Seven years later, we are no closer to finding the truth. But this isn't the first time an airliner has disappeared. And despite increased technology, it probably won't be the last. On the night of June 23, 1950, an aircraft disappearance would occur over Lake Michigan in the United States. Northwest Orient Flight 2501 prepared to depart from LaGuardia Airport, New York City at 7.31 p.m., bound for a stop in St. Paul International Airport in Minneapolis, before heading on to Spokane, then Seattle, Washington. It was a warm but pleasant night, and the passengers boarded the Douglas DC-4 airliner with four powerful Pratt & Whitney R2000 twin WASP engines, producing 1,450 horsepower each at takeoff. The DC-4 introduced in 1942, had proved to be an extremely reliable aircraft and was used in many airlines worldwide. Maximum airspeed was 280 miles per hour in the uncompressed crew and passenger compartments. This particular plane had been converted from a military version of the aircraft, a C-54 transport. It rolled off the assembly line on September 5, 1943, at the Douglas Aircraft Plant in Chicago, Illinois. Despite community efforts to keep the area rural, Orchard Place was selected as the new plant site. The Douglas Aircraft Plant, located in the newly approved industrial zone, also constructed four concrete runways at the site. The plant produced 655 cargo planes from July 1943 to October 1945 to aid the war effort. 
The complex was called Douglas Field, and at the end of 1945, it was turned over to the city of Chicago, and they renamed it Orchard Field. Orchard Field would become the site of Chicago's new airport, christened Chicago O'Hare International Airport, in 1949. Many aircraft assembled in Chicago found their way into airliner fleets soon after World War II. This particular aircraft was sold to Northwest and assigned tail number N95425. The airframe received its last major overhaul, a conversion to a 55-passenger cargo coach aircraft, and had just 1,692 flight hours since that overhaul. The engines were recently overhauled as well, with only 623 flight hours under its belt. The plane was mechanically sound. Captain Robert C. Lind of Hopkins, Minnesota, a 35-year-old pilot, was joined by first officer and co-pilot Vern F. Wolf, also 35, from Minneapolis. Bonnie Ann Feldman, 25, rounded out the crew as a stewardess. Lind was a veteran of the Minneapolis-New York route and flew almost exclusively on that route for over five years. Both pilots were experienced, competent, well-qualified, healthy, and rested for the flight. Fifty-five passengers boarded the plane, 22 men, 27 women, and six children. The flight was fully booked and near capacity. In fact, just 58 pounds below maximum capacity. The pilots conducted a thorough pre-flight briefing and were well aware of the chance of thunderstorms and the possibility of developing squall lines. Flight 2501 departed on time and reached a cruising altitude of 6,000 feet, heading on their flight path toward Cleveland, Ohio. Captain Lind had requested a cruising height of 4,000 feet before takeoff, but was denied due to other aircraft assignments. Captain Lind had hoped to avoid forecasted thunderstorms at the higher elevations. When the plane reached Cleveland, the captain again requested to descend to 4,000 feet, and this time the change was approved by air traffic controllers. At 9.33 p.m., thunderstorms and a squall line developed over Lake Michigan, but traffic controllers did not pass on this information to the pilots of Flight 2501. Fifty-six minutes later, at 10.29 p.m., Air Route Traffic Controllers, ARTC, requested Lynn to descend to 3,500 feet to avoid severe turbulence and another aircraft. An eastbound plane at 5,000 feet was experiencing extreme turbulence and a difficulty maintaining its cruising altitude, and the standard separation of 1,000 feet appeared insufficient during this turbulence. The aircrafts were expected to pass each other near Battle Creek, Michigan. 
22 minutes later, at 10.51 p.m., Flight 2501 reported it was over Battle Creek at 3,500 feet and would arrive over Milwaukee at 11.37 p.m. At 11.13, the pilots requested descent to cruising altitude at 2,500 feet, but they did not indicate why they made the request. ARTC could not approve that request because of other air traffic. The transmission would be the last communication with Flight 2501. When the flight failed to arrive on time, Northwest Radio at Milwaukee advised Northwest at Minneapolis as well as ARTC in Chicago. Fearing its radio transmitter may have been rendered inoperable, the radio station at Madison, Wisconsin, were sent flight instructions to circle the range station. All Civil Aeronautics Administration, CAA, radio stations in the Chicago, Minneapolis area tried contacting Flight 2501 on all frequencies. There was no response. Fearing the worst, Northwest Airlines requested an air-sea rescue operation to search for the craft. Chicago ARTC approved the request, and immediately planes and boats were sent out by the Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, and the state police of Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana. By 5.30 a.m. on the morning of June 24th, the missing craft was presumed down, as by that time, all its fuel would have been exhausted. By dawn's break, an intensive search began in earnest. All that day, hundreds of boats and planes scoured Lake Michigan for any sign of the lost aircraft. The search centered on the flight's last known contact, 18 miles north-northwest of Benton Harbor, Michigan, 3,500 feet over Lake Michigan. Later that day, Northwest Airlines released the following statement with an inadvertent error of the actual departure time. Northwest Airlines Douglas DC-4 plane, operating as a coach flight between New York and Seattle, Washington, and due to land in the Twin Cities at 1.15 a.m. Central Standard Time, Saturday, is still unreported. This flight left LaGuardia Field in New York City at 8.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time Friday, and the flight plan called for a nonstop flight to the Twin Cities. The captain of the plane is Robert C. Lind, co-pilot is Vern F. Wolf, and the stewardess is Bonnie Feldman. The last ground report by Northwest Airlines ground stations was made at 11.13 p.m. Central Standard Time approximately 21 minutes after the plane passed over Battle Creek, Michigan, flying at an altitude of 3,500 feet. This report was of a routine nature and no difficulties were reported. This plane, which is operating as flight number 2501, left New York with 55 passengers and a gas load of 2,500 gallons, sufficient fuel to operate for 12 hours. A search is being made of the Lake Michigan area, east of Milwaukee, and all CAA radio stations throughout the entire area have been alerted. The search was instituted after the plane failed to make its next routine report.
The search and rescue operations are being carried out jointly by Northwest Airlines, the CAA, U.S. Coast Guard, the Navy, and the Air Force through bases in the Midwest. It is presumed the plane is down. As the search continues, Northwest Airlines is notifying the relatives of passengers and crew members. Signed by K.R. Ferguson, Vice President of Operations and Engineering. By the end of the day, there was little sign of the crash, except for an oil slick in the area where the plane may have gone down. A Coast Guard cutter, the Woodbine, continued to work the site through the night, but the search was suspended due to darkness for the rest of the search response. That evening, the Woodbine crew picked up small pieces of the aircraft and an airline logbook. It seemed as if they had found the crash site. The next morning at dawn, the search continued for the Woodbine, now joined by Coast Guard vessels Mackinac, Hollyhock, and the Frederick Lee, all focusing on presumed crash location. Additional debris was picked up, including seat cushions, clothing, blankets, luggage, small pieces of cabin lining, and human body parts. News of the crash hit the newspapers that morning, widely spreading the story to the world of the accident. The New York Times proclaimed that if all on board were lost, it would be the most disastrous in the history of American commercial aviation. If the airplane did crash into Lake Michigan, it would have sunk quickly due to its capacity load. All air and surface search operation under Captain Henry Schmaltz, head of Flight D, 5th Rescue Squadron, 10th Air Force, Selfridge Field, Michigan, included Civil Air Patrol, Air National Guard, and Navy planes. The Air Rescue Squadron was using five aircraft and two more on order from Denver. Eleven Coast Guard vessels took part. Meanwhile, the actual search continued to frustrate authorities. The weather was calm, aiding in search efforts. A high overcast with slightly hazy conditions could have been clearer, but the waters were calm. The Naval Reserve's destroyer, Escort Daniel A. Joy found an additional oil slick with air bubbles rising to the surface, possibly from the submerged aircraft. Divers were sent to explore the bottom. At a depth of 66 feet, they were optimistic yet found nothing but rocks. The depth was 150 feet at the Woodbine site but the mud layer and the silt on the bottom were estimated at 30 to 40 feet deep. Divers went down, but visibility was so poor they could only see eight inches in front of them. Grapnel was used to drag the area, but produced no results. Lack of a confirmed crash site had reinforced the efforts searching the forests in northern Wisconsin on the chance that the DC-4 had cleared Lake Michigan. Two days after the crash, the Navy discontinued their efforts due to poor conditions and the likelihood that the aircraft had suffered a violent mid-air explosion or disintegrated upon impact, leaving too little to be salvaged. 
Coast Guard vessels and other aircraft continued air and sea surveillance, but little more was found to determine the accident's cause. One week after the crash, portions of two women were found many miles apart. Coast Guard vessels were dispatched to the areas and spent several more days looking for other debris. South Beach in South Haven, Michigan, had to close for nine days after the crash because many small body parts washed onto the shore among the swimmers. Sensational news reports from area newspapers reported on body parts, a child's pair of pants, a man's wallet found from the flight. The Coast Guard offered news reporters a chance to accompany them in the search debris keeping the morbid news cycle quite alive. We begin today with breaking news. An eyewitness report from Lieutenant Commander R.T. Helm, retired U.S. Navy, was published in the South Haven Tribune on June 26, 1950. A plane had flown over his home, very low. Then minutes later, there was a terrific flash out in the lake. This report opened the floodgates to other witnesses, reporting flashes of lights, poorly operating engines, and erratic flight paths. Some people in Wisconsin even reported a bright light over Lake Michigan for as long as two hours. Bits and pieces from the DC-4 would continue to wash up on the shores for weeks after the event, but nothing significant enough to indicate what happened or where the plane was located, grisly remains continued to wash up in the area shores for weeks and weeks after the incident. Many articles of clothing were encrusted with human flesh. As the summer season started in earnest, the press soon forgot the story and moved on to other news. The small items recovered indicated a high-impact event with the water with inertial forces acting in a forward, downward, and left direction. There were no signs of fire on any objects recovered. Almost seven months later, the Civil Aeronautics Board released their accident investigation report. Its findings? 1. There was nothing to indicate any deficiency on the part of the carrier, crew, aircraft, or pre-flight briefings. Two. Despite an extensive surface and underwater search, only a few small fragments of the plane were found. 3. The report noted the latest forecast and the news of thunderstorms and squalls were not made available to the pilots of Flight 2501. Conclusion There is not sufficient evidence upon which to make a determination of probable cause. Investigation complete. Families of 58 victims of the accident had no closure, no satisfaction of knowing what happened to their loved ones, and that continues to this day. Today, Northwest Flight 2501 is frequently mentioned by UFO enthusiasts. They believe an unearthly presence was involved with its disappearance. The eyewitness reports of a bright light hovering over the water for nearly two hours strengthened this theory. 
The same eyewitness reports, encouraged by this sensational press and driven by the general public's desire to become part of the story. But what really happened? In 2004, MSRA, a Michigan nonprofit organization, renewed efforts to locate the plane. Author Clive Cussler and the National Underwater Marine Agency, NUMA, another nonprofit dedicated to finding the world's most famous lost vessels, joined them. New technology and advances in side-scan sonar may be the key to finally offering closure to the victims' families. Research began, and during this phase, MSRA board member Valerie Van Heest set out to find and reach out to families who lost loved ones during the flight. She would later write a book, Fatal Crossing, on the flight and efforts to locate it. During the summer of 2004, the team set out to map 500 square miles of the lake, identified by NUMA as the probable location of Flight 2501. They did not locate the wreck. They continued to conduct searches for a month every summer, combined with extensive off-season research for the next nine years, all to no avail. Nine new shipwrecks were discovered and documented, but not the airliner. In 2008, MSRA researchers determined an unmarked mass grave in St. Joseph, Michigan, contained body parts that washed up on shore during the summer of 1950. The remains were buried without permission or even knowledge of the victims' families. The gravesite remained unmarked until MSRA and the Philbrent Family Funeral Home came together to place a marker at the site, memorializing the victims and the accident. Cussler dropped out of the annual search and investigation in 2014, but MSRA continued on themselves that summer. During the spring of 2015, a church sexton from South Haven, Michigan, Marianne Frazier, helped her mother with the family genealogical research. They noticed an entry marked for victims of Northwest 2501. Further study by Frazier located the actual unmarked burial plot in Lakeview Cemetery. Remains that washed up on South Haven beaches that summer were preserved and buried the year following the accident. According to Frazier, families were not notified because officials believed it was too horrific to inform families about body bits with no way to identify actual victims positively. 2015 also saw Clive Cussler returning with his group to Lake Michigan after one-year absence, encouraged by new leads and research. NUMA continued its search efforts with MSRA that year and in 2016 and 2017 as well. David Trotter of Undersea Research Associates joined the search efforts in 2013 2016, and 2017. The plane continued to elude investigators, but two additional shipwrecks were discovered and documented. In 2018, 
MSRA purchased their own side-scan sonar to continue the search independently and upgraded that unit the following year for an improved range and operating depth. The COVID pandemic hampered fundraising efforts in 2020, but efforts continue to raise funds and continue searching for Northwest Flight 2501. Today, Northwest Orient Flight 2501's mysterious disappearance remains the most protracted, unsolved commercial aviation disaster in U.S. history and it continues to baffle investigators. They carry on with the search for answers about what happened to Northwest Orient Flight 2501. Today, the small memorial at Riverview Cemetery in St. Joseph, Michigan, pays tribute to those who lost their lives during Flight 2501. And because of the dedicated individuals who make up the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates, we may eventually bring closure to the families lost on Northwest Flight 2501. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.